0: Welcome to the Mountain Park Church podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory at mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Well, if you are uh, visiting with us today, we especially just want to say welcome here. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you. Uh, My name is uh, Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here, Um, and uh, we just really believe that Jesus can change our lives, and that that's not just a philosophical statement. It's not just an intellectual statement, um, but actually we believe that inherently God wants to do supernatural things in our life. That inherently the gospel is supernatural. That inherently, what he's inviting you and I to is a different kind of life. And we've been talking about this through Ephesians. Um, As we continue in this, we're just sort of taking our time as we walk through this book because Paul is is kind of laying out for us, the writer of this book in the New Testament is laying out for us this worldview and this idea that we struggle with sometimes. And that's that um, your life and my life are supernatural. That everything that makes up life is just not confined to what we can touch or taste or smell or see or hear. But there's a dimension to life that goes beyond that. And the Bible calls it supernatural. And um, you can listen back as we've been tracking through. I'm not going to cover everything we've talked about. But today we're going to keep diving into this idea um, that really, in essence, is, is a is a counterpunch back, um, a counterpunch back to sort of the cultural assumptions of our day. It's a counterpunch to the modern, rational way of thinking that somehow, scientifically, we need to be able to measure everything and that there is a measuring metrics for everything. We've been going down this road for hundreds of years And science still can't answer some of the most fundamental questions about life. This isn't a message that actually, I have no problem with science. And actually, um, it's good for us to remember that in, uh, in antiquity and in the fourth and fifth century, in the 1400s, 1500s, that... The, the major kind of movement toward scientific observation was actually from Christians inside the church who wanted to somehow be able to explain the supernatural. They wanted to understand the purposes of God. They wanted to understand the nature and character of God. There was this driving force to see and hear and know and understand who God was. And that's what drove, The flourishment at the beginning of the scientific world, it's not opposed to the Word of God. Science and the Bible don't contradict each other. They don't sit diametrically opposed to each other. They actually work in tandem together. And so as we talk about the supernatural realm, we're not neglecting and rejecting science or We're not even rejecting rational thinking. We're just saying, look, it's actually more than that. That you and I have been made for more than what we're living for right now. I just believe, like, somewhere in my gut somewhere, all that, you know, under that Halloween candy. (laughs) I did go with Simon just down our street, by the way, this week. I needed to monitor his candy intake. (laughs) (laughs) and take it for myself when we got home. Anyway, um, but somewhere under there, under those chocolate bars, they're so small. I actually wanted to do an experiment this week and just see, like, how many grams each one were and see, like, after, uh, you know, whatever, a little bit of time, how many full chocolate bars I had eaten. But I was too scared to do that. Anyway, so I digress. Somewhere under there... I believe that you and I have this longing, we know, and maybe we can't even put our finger on it, but we know that we were made for more than we're living for. We know that somehow we were made for something greater and bigger. And Paul is gonna say, yeah, you're right, we were. And it has to do with the spiritual realm that God has created intersecting our realm. Last week, I can't even remember what we exactly talked about last week, so you can listen to it, but we talked about some good stuff last week. This week, we're going to just continue with that and recognizing that we're in a spiritual battle. Paul is really clear about that. Ephesians 6.11, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The whole thesis of Paul's book of Ephesians is that very point, that we're in a war. You can reject that idea. You can deny it, but it still exists. You can pretend like it's not happening. You can uh, you know, explain it away, but the reality exists that we're in a spiritual war, that there's a spiritual battle going on, and it's taking place. It's coming out in and through our lives in a myriad of ways every week. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Ephesians, which is in the New Testament. We're still in these first three verses of chapter two. As Paul begins to unpack three primary influences in our lives that undermine the work and the purpose and the will of God. So if you want to understand what are the major influences that actually oppose what God wants for me in my life, Paul lays it out in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And he talks about the world. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. The demonic spiritual kingdom that's led by the devil and our own flesh, our desires. Those are the three areas of battle and warfare that Paul highlights in our lives. So we're, we're just gonna jump in and, um, and talk about that. The first thing that we need to understand from Paul, and I'm just gonna stick to my notes as best I can today so that we can move through this, is Paul is, in chapter two, he's isolating the problem. He's diagnosing what is so wrong with the world. He would agree with us and and I would say, and I think that you would agree that there's something horribly wrong with our world. There's something tragically that has gone wrong that we haven't been able to fix. For the duration that humanity has been on the earth, we haven't been able to solve our own problems. We're no closer today through all of the advancements and technology that we have, we're no closer to solving the fundamental problems that we face, and Paul would agree with that. He'd say it's because there's spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare, and his first diagnosis is that we're dead without God. That as long as we try to address these symptoms and these problems, and put God off to the side and reject his influence or presence in our life, we are dead. And it's not just that we're sick and we need help. Paul is literally saying, you're not, this is not a a management issue in your life. That without Jesus and the work of Jesus on the cross, you're dead. You can't take a few pills or pop some prescriptions to fix it. You don't just wait it out and hope that it goes away, that fundamentally You are dead. I'm dead without Jesus. And that there's nothing we can do to reverse that or change it. That's Paul's first diagnosis, that we're dead. I want to uh, just have you turn with me to Romans. This is the best way that Paul describes it in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, and then 15 to 17. 17. Paul says this, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world, and Adam's sin, the result of Adam and his actions brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Verse 15, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. So what Paul is highlighting there is that we're born into sin. If you think about this in, uh, from an eternal perspective, our default destination when we're born is not heaven. Heaven. Our default destination is death and separation from the presence of God. But Paul is highlighting this glorious truth that we find through scripture that God wasn't satisfied with that result and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect, sinless life, die on the cross, shed his blood for our sin so that we can move from death to life. Not just different degrees of getting better and managing our pain and managing sin and managing the garbage in this world, but a full transfer from death to life. Paul is saying, look, if you are not in a relationship with God, you're spiritually dead and there's nothing you can do in your own strength or power to change it. Our default destination is not heaven. Good people, quote unquote, don't go to heaven. People that are saved by the grace of Jesus through his sacrifice and his blood are transferred, the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness to light. So Paul's first diagnosis is that we're dead. We're dead because of our disobedience. We're dead because of our many sins. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We can't change that. And Paul says we need forgiveness, Ephesians 1, 7, and 2, 4. Paul's second diagnosis is that we're under the control of someone or something. There is nothing neutral. There's nothing neutral in the physical realm or the spiritual realm. You're either under the control of something or someone. In this war, there's no Switzerland. (laughs) As much as we love their chocolate and cheese. Man, I love it. Anyway, I've got to stop talking about food so much. Um, Maybe it's because I don't eat anything Sunday morning, and then by this time I'm just getting hungry. I'll have to see a counselor about that. So, uh, (laughs) or just talk to my wife. I'm sure she'll talk to me this afternoon about that. Um, So Paul is saying, there's no neutral. There's no Switzerland in this equation. Paul is actually bringing us out to a larger meta-narrative that speaks of two opposing kingdoms, one of death and one of life. And we're either under the influence of and control of one or the other. We don't get the chance to walk in this middle ground where we're saved by our good works or by our good deeds or just by being nice people or by being helpful people. That doesn't actually do anything for us. We're either under the control of one kingdom or the other one. And Paul is highlighting for us here that when you are not under the control or the leadership of God in your life, you are subject to these three influences. These three influences. I'm going to just read it... um, right now, uh, Ephesians 2 says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen wor- uh, world. That Greek word is kata, and it donates this, uh, this, it denotes, not donates, it denotes this motion of pushing down from above, that, that we're either under the influence of the kingdom of darkness, which is pushing us down and therefore controlling us. This isn't a passive working. This isn't sort of a, a, a nebulous influence, that there is something that is pushing us and leading us. And the question is, are you going to surrender under the weight and the leadership of the kingdom of God, which brings life and joy and peace, or are you going to be pushed down by the kingdom of darkness, which brings death and destruction, fear and terror, separation from God? You just get to pick. Which one do you want? And God in his goodness gives us the ability to have the free will we have to decide for ourselves. So the question for us is really simple. Who do you want to be led by? Because who you are led by is going to determine the kind of fruit that comes out in your life. The experience of of your life is determined by who you allow to lead you and what you allow to lead you. The preposition rather implies that in some way they've come under the control of the devil. Similarly, Paul can speak of walking under the control of the spirit, under the control of the flesh, or even under the control of elemental spirits. So Paul is just highlighting here again these different things that actually control our life, that move us in our life. And he's saying, take your pick. You're gonna be controlled or led by something. The question is, what are you gonna be led by? So who or what is controlling us? Again, Paul outlines these three areas of influence. Verse two, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our life. Those three areas of influence, the world, the devil, the flesh. So what does Paul mean by the world? We're just going to briefly touch on this. We talked about this last week, but it's such a, um, a big kind of abstract idea to so many of us. So number one, the world. Paul's not talking about it here in the literal sense of creation, as in Ephesians 1-4, but in the theological sense of people organized in their opposition against God. This could be interpreted to refer to the various non-Christian religions, ideologies, philosophies, values, and economic system, as well as the more mundane, But the equally powerful influences of peer pressure, fashion, and media, these influences provide a script for living day to day life apart from God and His values. Second definition of the world all that is, all that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations. At any time, current in the world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitutes a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale, again, inevitably to exhale. All this is included in the aeon, which is. As Bengal has expressed it, the subtle informing spirit of the cosmos or world of men who are living alienated apart from God. The Germans have a word for it. They've always got something for something, which is Zeitgeist. The, sp- <laughs> the spirit of this age. I just wanted to find Zeitgeist for you. This is the best way, I believe, for us to kind of just wrap our heads around it. It's a noun which is the defining spirit or mood of a particular period in history. So what Paul is saying is something that we know, cultures will come and go, every culture that's ever been has reached an end point. And this culture that we're in, this cultural moment that we're in, this zeitgeist that we're in, these ideas and emotions and opinions that are informing and pressing in on us on our everyday life, one day this will end. And what Paul is saying is you you have a choice. Are you going to live under the influence of the culture that you're living in? Or are you going to live under the influence of the everlasting King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? The word of God that stands as cultures come and go, as kingdoms rise and fall. There's one thing that has been constant from before the earth was created. And that's the word of God, his desire and his principles in our life are the thing that Paul is saying. This is what you need to be guided by. You need to actually learn to resist the influence, the unhealthy influence of culture in your life. And it wouldn't take long to, if we were to do a Q&A, to sit down and talk about the cultural zeitgeist of our time, which is this glorification of emotion. If I feel it, I can do it. And whatever I feel must be true. If I don't feel a certain way today, I'm not that way. If I don't feel this in my gut, it doesn't need to lead me. I do what I feel and I serve myself and I please myself. Paul is saying that's an influence that just is not benign, it's an influence that is actually a power opposed to the word and the truth of God on your life and on my life. He's saying that's an influence coming from our culture that will kill you if you live under its weight? What would be the words that we would describe the global atmosphere around us right now? Be panic, hysteria, depression, anger, uncontrolled rage, fear, anxiety. These things are not the kingdom of God. And yet we bow to them every day and we live under their weight and their influence. And Paul is saying, stop looking at your phone and start looking up to God. Stop looking at the circumstances around you and allowing them to lead you and dictate you and guide you and start living by a truth that's constant in your life. What if you took one week even to turn off your phone, to stop searching social media for a week? Stop watching the news and see what happened in your spirit life, in your emotional life. What would happen if we stopped looking down and started looking up? My hypothesis would be that the next time you turned on your phone and you saw whatever's going on in our culture and in our world, you'd go, wow, that's not even healthy for me. Why am I living under this weight? It just grieves me. I look at this young girl, Greta, what's her name, the environmental activist, and I'm so grieved for her because her parents have thrust her onto the world stage under a, a platform in a weight that she cannot sustain as a little young girl, and she's being crushed under it. Within minutes in her speech to the UN, she was losing all control. She gave way to the weight and the pressure of culture on her, telling her that she needed to be uh, just irrationally emotional and let loose. And Paul is saying, look, you can be led by that, but what is it going to produce in your life? Where is it leading us right now? If we follow the zeitgeist of our culture right now, where is that going to take us? My suggestion to you is that that's actually not going to produce in us anything that God wants to produce in us. He wants us actually to walk and to live above culture. We don't run and hide from it, but we apply his truth to it. Romans 12 verse 2, if you Have your Bibles. You can just turn with me there. Paul says this in response. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God wants you to understand his desire for you is for life and peace for strength and joy, not for depression and anxiety, not for irrational fear and not for the weight of this world to just rob you and strip you and suck you of every good thing that you have in your life. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits at the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. I want to propose to you that we need to bring our feelings under the authority of Jesus Christ. What I feel in any given moment needs, it needs the commentary of Jesus on it. Left to my own devices, my feelings, it's proven to be true. They don't lead me to a place of life and freedom. They lead me to bondage and fear and slavery. Your feelings and my feelings are not the litmus test for what is true and what is right. How you feel about your life today, how you feel about your situation is not the litmus test. The word of God over you is the litmus test. This is a cultural zeitgeist that I just believe God wants us to counteract. We aren't driven by our feelings. We're driven by truth and wisdom. I heard a preacher say this the other day. We need help for this world but that help is not going to come from this world. We need something, a higher authority to actually speak into our lives and to provide us with leadership. So that's the world that Paul is talking about that stands in opposition, and it's not benign. It's not neutral. If we allow the zeitgeist and the the cultural moment to lead us, it's going to lead us toward death. Number two, Paul says the second influence is the devil himself or the demonic realm. When he goes on to tell us in verse two that the devil is the commander of the powers of the unseen world or part of them. So Paul's word for devil there, we're just gonna give you a little bit of information here. Uh, because this is actually, once you dive deeper into this, it's, it's not our Hollywood version of Satan or the devil is a mischaracteration of who he is. He's not a guy dressed in red with, you know horns and a pitchfork. Actually, the Bible says he's an angel who masquerades in light and beauty. that his intention is not to come to you in the fullness of who he is and just kind of expose himself, but his intention is to come to you and deceive you. To actually trick you into believing that what you're doing is right. That the ideas that you have about a certain situation or scenario are right and correct. So we need to understand who he is. Devil is a translation of the Old Testament Satan which is a judicial term. So when the Bible in the Old Testament talks about Satan, it doesn't use the personal pronoun. In the Old Testament, when the Bible uses the word Satan, um, it's not uh, speaking of a person, but an office. It uses actually a descriptor, the Satan, which means the accuser. Someone who comes with an agenda in our life to oppose the work and the will and the desire of God. He's a supernatural adversary of God and a tempter of humankind. He goes by a number of names. Beelzebub, prince of demons, Belial, dragon, ancient serpent, enemy, evil one. His characteristics, the characteristics of the devil, he's the ruler of this world. John 12:3, 3, 14, 30, 16, 10. Even Jesus acknowledged that the devil has been given a certain amount of authority to operate and to work on this world. He's the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. He's the prince of the power of the air. In ancient times, in ancient Near Eastern times and in first century a Roman life and world, they believed that, um, that demonic spirits inhabited the place between the earth and sort of the atmosphere of the skies. And so when the Bible talks about him being the prince of the power of the air, what it's saying is that it's giving him a jurisdictional sort of rulership over this earth. And somehow, in the way that they perceived the supernatural realm, there was the earth, there was this intermediate sort of airspace, and that God, the most high, was above that. That his kingdom and his reign and his throne and his rulership were above that. But everything on the earth and in this intermediate space was under the influence of the enemy of God. He's the tempter. He's a murderer and a liar, John eight forty four, 44, Revelation 12, 9. We're going to keep going. He's disguised as an angel of light. He blinds the minds of those who don't believe. He oppresses humankind. He causes illness. He rules over people. He lures and traps them in sin. He accuses Christians. This is the, the work and the character of the devil, the enemy of God. These things that he does in this way that he's active, again, is not some benign, neutral, non-effective way. He seeks to influence our life by lying to us, by accusing us. He can bring sickness. He can overcome our bodies physically. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a sec. But his work is fundamentally opposed to the desire and purpose of God for your life and my life. Satan's origin. Satan is a created being. One of the biggest mistakes we make is believing somehow that God and Satan are on equal footing. They're not. God alone is eternal, immortal, uncreated, self existing. God alone is omnipotent. The devil is not omnipotent. His power has limitations. The devil is not omniscient. He can't be everywhere at the same time. The devil can't read your mind, but he can influence it. He's not on a same class level system with God. It's not the the titans going head to head against each other. The devil is a created being. I'm gonna read with you a couple of verses just to give you a little more context there. Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 15, says this. This is a a prophetic word to a a king, the king of Tyre, but also, uh, or the king of Babylon, but also moves into actually a spiritual realm that um, most scholars believe is talking about the kingdom of darkness, about the devil. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. Uh, In Job, I think chapter 38, God is talking with Job and God is kind of setting Job straight and God says, were you there, Job, when I created the cosmos, when the morning stars rejoiced together at my creation? Most scholars actually believe that that phrase, morning stars, refers to spiritual beings that God has created. We've talked about this concept of his divine counsel. And here in Isaiah, there's significant sort of evidence to suppose that Satan was one of those morning stars that God created. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. God said, instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, to the lowest depths. Ezekiel 28 says this, 12 to 19. It's talking about the origins of... Possibly of the devil. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and exquisite in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone red carnelian, pale green peridot, white moonstone, blue green beryl, onyx, green jasper, blue lapis lazuli, turquoise, and emerald, all beautifully crafted for you. Man, I should get a job at Vanden Dual Jewelry after that. <laughs> I think I've got that down. Hey, Brian. (laughs) They were given you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You, this is speaking of this divine being, had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your rich commerce led you to violence and you sinned. So I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from your place among the stones of fire. Your heart was filled with pride because of all of your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by your love of splendor. So I threw you to the ground and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and dishonest traits. So I brought fire out from within you and it consumed you. I reduce you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All who knew you are appalled at your fate. You have come to a terrible end and you will exist no more. That Hebrew word for ground there is the same one that's used in Genesis 3 when God is actually bringing judgment to the serpent, which we're going to talk about in one second. That word ground means terrestrial earth, but that also signifies and meant for the early Hebrew people, the underworld, the place of the dead. And so God is assigning to this divine being not just to live on the earth, but an eternity of death and destruction because of his actions. So if those are the characteristics of the devil himself, who are the powers in the unseen world that he's talking to? Verse 2 again, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. The Bible talks about structure and hierarchy in both the kingdom of God and the devil is a copycat. So in his kingdom, there's structure and hierarchy. Unbeknownst to us, God doesn't rule in a flat kingdom where everybody gets equal say and everybody gets equal authority. The kingdom of God is ruled in hierarchy with God the most high at the top of the chain. And so the kingdom of darkness is set up by the devil to mimic and copycat God's kingdom. He's the one who rules in authority over the powers and uh, principalities and rulers in the kingdom of darkness. So how do the powers operate. That word uh, for power there is excusia and means authority. And Paul is specifically referring to demonic influence. And so when Paul talks about the powers, he's not just talking about sort of nebulous sort of ideas of sin or of evil or wickedness. He's actually talking about specific demonic influences, spiritual beings that are unique that have their own mind, their own will, their own emotion, their own intent. And Paul is saying that this powers of darkness and the unseen realm, it's not just these uh, sort of big sort of unexplainable forces. It's not these cultural ideas that although those exist, they're driven by demonic influences that have an agenda. So how do they operate? I wanna read to you one of the leading scholars on Paul's language of the powers and principalities, Clinton Arnold said this, the bulk of what Paul had to say about the powers had to do primarily with their influence on individuals and the church. So Clinton Arnold is saying, look, these powers are specific demonic forces that are looking to take you and I out. They're influencing people at the highest levels of government. In Daniel 10, we, we don't have time to read that there, but there's a story in Daniel 10 of where he's praying and he has this angelic visitation. This angel actually comes to him and he says, Daniel, from the moment you began praying, I wanted to come to you, but I was actually in warfare against the prince of Persia, this demonic spirit that actually had jurisdiction over the whole nation of Persia. And this angel said to Daniel, look, I was in conflict with him and I couldn't get to you. So I needed help, actually, in the angelic realm to fight him off so that I could come and answer your prayer. You know, sometimes when we are wondering where God is in the whole equation, why isn't God listening to my prayer? What's going on? We need to recognize that we don't know what's going on. Sometimes God is inviting us to wait, and he's teaching us patience, and he's asking us to continue to seek him for something. But sometimes there's a spiritual atmosphere and dynamic taking place. There's conflict. And the very thing that you're asking for is being opposed in the supernatural realm. And this was Daniel's experience. When we get to the New Testament and in the Gospels and the book of Acts, we see this demonic influence and activity. It comes out in the presence of Jesus. That the, the very presence and nature of Jesus on the earth provoked the enemy. When Jesus said that he came to bring the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God to the earth, He said where he was present, the kingdom of God was present. And where he was present, there was a a confrontation in the supernatural realm. And demonic spirits were provoked wherever Jesus walked. It's not like he went out looking for it. He didn't buy an office space and, and rent a building that said exorcisms on it. He wasn't charging people money and trying to make a a career out of it. It just happened to be that his relationship with God, his intimacy with his Father, his spiritual life provoked things in the spiritual realm all around him. If you're not experiencing any opposition in your life spiritually, I wanna carefully and gently suggest That you're not fully pressing in to the things that God wants for you spiritually. That you're not walking in the kind of spiritual walk that Jesus walked in. If you're not experiencing opposition in your life, you're not a threat to the enemy. If you're not a threat to the enemy, he's got no use for you. Some people have this concept and this idea that when they give their lives to Jesus, everything is, you know, God, you, you have all authority and power. Every kingdom and ruler and authority bows to your name. Yes, that's true. But we're in a battle. And Jesus, as he was leaving the earth, said, you know, in this world, you're going to have many troubles and trials. His life was a model of opposition at every turn and at every front. And his invitation for you and I is not to run away from that to a five-star all-inclusive and spend the rest of our life there. His invitation to us is to walk in his kingdom authority and engage in the battle. Fight for your family. Fight for your life. Fight for those around you that don't know Jesus. Fight for the purposes and the plans of God over your life. Get involved. Mix it up. Because of the authority of Jesus, the enemy must obey what Jesus Christ declares. And because We are sons and daughters of God. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've been moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have an authority and an inheritance, a position seated above all demonic rule and authority. It doesn't mean that conflict isn't gonna come. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna be wounded and hurt. But what it means is that you're following a leader who's won the victory and your victory whether it's today or tomorrow, or you know, in heaven is assured. So, how do these demonic spirits manifest themselves? I just want to read to you a few things. There's a direct and immediate influence. They cause physical affliction, violently insane behavior. They can make you mute make you deaf, make you blind. There's demonic influences in the book of Luke that characterize and look very similar to epilepsy that leads you to cutting and self-destruction. If you are ever contemplating harming yourself, I just want to be super clear that the kingdom of God, Jesus would never ask you to do that. You are way too valuable for him to ever have him incite the idea that harming yourself would be a good thing. So we see in these gospels, the demonic oppression that was on people led them to want to harm and destroy themselves. It bound them and it Put them into slavery. Next slide here, I want to show you. The gospel writers do not clearly explain the relationship between demonization and sickness. On the one hand, not all illness is attributed to the actual presence of evil spirits. It's really important for us to understand. It is significant that summary statements from all three gospels lists the demonized as a category separate from those suffering with other diseases. Mark especially differentiated between these two, never using the word heal in reference to a demonized person. Moreover, the same symptom is spoken of as sickness in one reference and as demonization in another. So we can't make assumptions about what's going on. We can't make assumptions about what is happening. And that, the, the, the number one thing that I... I want to just leave with you to help you in this regard, is when you're praying about something, one of the greatest two-letter words you can use is if. God, if there is something spiritual behind this, if there is something spiritual taking place, I cut it off in the name of Jesus and forbid it from having any further influence or effect over me. But I'm not gonna walk around just assuming I know what in the world is going on in the spiritual realm. But I also don't wanna discount its role and its influence either. Leads us to a common question. Can Christians be demon-possessed? And like most things, the devil is in the details of this. I want to show you just what the dictionary defines possess as. Number one, have as belonging to one. To own, to have, or be the owner of. Second definition, to have possession of as distinct from ownership. Third, to have as as an ability, quality, or characteristic. Although a non-Christian may be said to be possessed by a demon, the Christian cannot be so possessed as though the ownership of his life belongs to the enemy. This is really important. When we give our life to Jesus, Paul says it in Ephesians 1, that the Holy Spirit comes into us and seals us, protects us. that he takes up residence in us and his power is so great that we cannot be ripped out of his hand. That there is no horde of hell, no demonic influence, no power of the devil himself that can take us from the hand of God and bring us back into slavery and ownership under his influence. Romans 8 is one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. I encourage you to memorize it. But it says there's nothing that can separate us from the power of God in our life. That you and I are in no danger of being overcome by the enemy and him robbing us of our salvation. Of him removing us by force from the kingdom of light into the kingdom of darkness again. That cannot happen. But what you and I can do and what Christians can do is invite the devil to have influence in your life. Paul talks about it in terms like foothold and stronghold. By your agreement with sin, by engaging in the garbage of life, you can invite the devil to have influence. You can give land over to him. We've talked about this illustration before, but it's like you open up your front gate to him and you just invite him to squat on your front lawn. He doesn't own the house and you can kick him out whenever you want. But you invite him in because you walk in sin and you walk contrary to the purposes and plans of God in your life. Don't be deceived and misled that your actions, that sin in these things, are just some kind of um, nebulous, unaffective force. If you give the devil or the demonic realm a foothold in your life, they will take it. And then what they will do is they will claw and steal and kill and destroy to get all the ground that they can get in your life. They're like a disease in your life. They spread like wildfire when you invite them in, when you invite the presence of the demonic into your life. When you walk in agreement with sin in these things, it's like a sickness that you invite, a virus in your life that you invite. And the greatest news is that God says, you have authority, you could stop it anytime you want. But you need to humble yourself, repent and resist. You need to walk back out onto the front lawn of your life and tell the devil to get off your property. This is what Paul is talking about. Can Christians and do they need to be delivered? Yes. When you invite demonic influence into your life, when you give it a foothold, you need to actually expel it from your life. That takes prayer, that's something that we do together. In Paul's mind, when we talk about things like pride and lust and anger, these aren't just uh, attitudes, these are actually attached to demonic spirits. That's why you'll hear me pray often and I pray all the time, I renounce the spirit of pride. It's not just this general idea of being proud, there's a demonic influence behind it wanting me to be subservient to it. You need to be wise and aware of this. If you're struggling with irrational anger, that's not just a, a, you know, I want to buy the next self-help book and try and be good about it. That there's a demonic influence behind that that needs to be addressed and dealt with in your life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. So why in the world does all of this matter? It matters because God wants you to be free. It matters because if you're naive to the work of the devil in the demonic realm, you're vulnerable. It matters because he's created you for more. It matters because your life matters to him. It matters because your strength and your hope and your peace matter to him. It matters to him because before we had ever turned to God and asked him for anything, he sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and restore us back to relationship to him. Sometimes we, we, we want to throw our hands up in the air and say, God, why? Why don't you just kill all the demonic and evil? Why don't you just eradicate it from the earth? Do you know why I believe that he won't? I mean, we could sit through a whole philosophy class on it, but at the end of the day, I believe the reason that God is allowing this to operate, he's allowing the confrontation in your life and in my life, because if he were to wipe out sin and death right now, billions of his children would go to hell. And God loves you way too much. He's holding out for you to the very last moment. It says that he's not slow in working, he's patient, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to life. If you're here and you haven't given your life to Christ, he's waiting for you. He hasn't returned yet because he's waiting for you to repent of your sins. Humble yourself and receive his love and his grace. In a moment, God could snap his fingers and everything would be gone and changed. But he's willing to endure the twisted dysfunction and evil of this world for just a moment more because he wants you. Because he made you for a reason. He gave his life for you. He made you for relationship. He said destiny is on your life and he wants to see it fulfilled and come to fruition. He doesn't want to see you struggling, crawling grasping for breath and scraping at the garbage on the ground. He wants to see you stand up and become the man and woman that he has made, that was purposed in his heart before the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, but I would say, God, I'll put up with this world that's going to hell in a handbasket. I'll put up with sin and disease and sickness and everything that's wrong if I can see for eternity my friends and my family come to know you. God, I'll put up with 30 years of struggle and trial and pain, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, if I get to spend an eternity in your presence, fully coming alive justified by faith through grace. So why isn't God just wiping it out? Because he's waiting for us. He's waiting for you. He loves you. He made you for a reason. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church at and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.